Erev Tov, good evening. Tonight's shiur is sponsored by Alan and Dina Stigman. In memory of their grandparents, Yitzchak ben Meir, Devorah bat Abraham, and Tovah bat Yisrael Hillel. Hamerachem al kol b'odav yichus v'echmon v'achem al-nefesh ruach hachamashon ha-niftarim shem tov na'olam. Yitzchak ben Meir, Devorah bat Abraham, Tovah bat Yisrael Hillel. We are continuing in our introduction of the Rambam. There's something I skipped last night, and it was not intentional. I actually think it's a good place to start. If you look at the PDF from yesterday, and if you don't have it in front of you, please don't concern yourself. We, we were reading from the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. That was page 196 in the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas. And for those of you who have your screens on, thank you very, very much. And for those of you who want to turn your screens on, please feel free to do so. I would love to see who I'm learning with. At the end of his derashat, his community, his speech to his community, about... Shimon HaTzadik, who we discussed last night, Rabbi Yosef Masas writes the following words, Zehu rabotai mashriyesh lahagid nikhvodchem midivrei yamav shel Shimon HaTzadik zechudo yagen alenu amen. Rabotai, ladies and gentlemen, this is what I have to tell you about the life of Shimon HaTzadik. May his memory protect us. And he records what else he spoke to his community about. Ve'od, dibarnu im akahal. He said, I spoke with the community. To act towards the Arabs with patience and with derch eretz, with courtesy, with dignity. And I spoke about this matter at length. Elohim yichonenu v'yivarichenu yer panav itanu sena, amen. And Rabbi Yosef Masas doesn't tell us what he said. And some days I wish that if there was anything he would have told us, it would have been exactly what he said about acting with their gheretz, with courtesy and respect towards our Arab neighbors. But I think that this attitude here of ending off a derasha, not just derasha, who, who, who is gheretz with? We're talking about a nation that it's no secret that we haven't always gotten along with each other in history. But our job is derech eretz, courtesy, respect. I, I never get political here. But all I can say is that we're missing leaders, religious ones and otherwise, who have this love of human dignity to the point where they encourage their talmidim to always treat others with patience, tolerance, and with their eretz, with proper manners and etiquette. And on that note, I wish to begin tonight the study of the writings of Antignosis Soho. Now I have a number of different Mishneh Torahs in front of me, but in the writings of Arav Kapach, we are in the Mishneh Torah, on page Lamed Chet of the introduction, 38 of the introduction, if you don't have Rav Kapach's Mishneh Torah, please don't be afraid. Go to safaria.org or any other website that has the Rambam's Mishneh Torah and look for the introduction to the Mishneh Torah. If you're in my book, you're in the middle of the page where it says Chet. 
אנטיגנוס איש סוכו ובית דינו קיבלו משמעון הצדיק ובית דינו. אנטיגנוס, the man of סוכו. In one edition of the Mishneh Torah I have, they call him אנטיגנס. But in all the books that are in front of me, it's אנטיגנוס. איש סוכו. Anyone here familiar with Prakavot? Can you tell me what you notice about the way the Rambam spells the word Soho? At least in the editions of Prakavot that I have in front of me, Soho is spelled... Yeah, but what, the spelling of Soho is with a Samech, and here with a Sin. I don't know if the Rambam's Prakavot has a scene also, and that's why he writes it that way. Just a note, something to look into. It makes no practical difference. So Antignas Ish Soho and his Bedin, Kiblu Mishimon HaTzadik Uvedino. They receive the oral law, the oral tradition, from Antignos. Uh, sorry, Antignos received from Shimon HaTzadik and his Bedin. And if Shimon HaTzadik was the last of the Anshei Knesset Gdunah, the men of the Great Assembly. So essentially we're dealing with generation two. Shimon HaTzadik, the next generation, so really the first of the Chachamim, after the men of the Great Assembly is Antignos Yishtochot. Before we go anywhere we don't need to go, let's jump into the writings of Rabbi Yosef Masas and look exactly as to what is the nature of the name Antignos. There's a PDF attached to the bottom of your Google Classroom Zoom invitation. So if you go into the Google Classroom, for those who are new with us, I'd like to welcome, there are some new faces here tonight. Welcome to the Bet Midrash. It should be in your PDF there. And it should say 194 at the top right of the page. Do you see that? Baruch Do you see page 194? Yeah, anyone need help finding it? Okay. I'm sorry, I made a mistake. The reason why you don't remember is it's on page 197. It should say 197. Now you have it? There's a PDF attached to the bottom of the Zoom invitation. And it says on it, Antignos Ish Soho. There's a first page, which is a cover page for a book, Nachalat Avot, by Rabbi Yosef Mzaz. And then the second page should say 197. No, again, I'm telling you the wrong page number. The bookmark is on the wrong page. Does it say 203 at the top? There you go. 203 at the top. I'm sorry, I'm between so many books. 203 at the top, very good. Antignos ish socho kibel mishimon hatzadik. This is the Mishnah in Perkei Avot. Antignos, the man of socho, received from Shimon hatzadik. Hu haya omer, he used to say, Al tiyuch ha'avadim ha'mishamashin et harav al menat kabel peras. Do not be like servants who serve their master. Meaning, we should not serve the Creator. 
like servants who serve their master in order to receive a pras, a reward. Similar to the English word prize. Those of you who are good with languages, I wonder if they're connected with each other. Ela, rather, Rather, you should be like those who serve their master, not in order to receive a reward. And the awe of heaven should always be upon you. Just simply understand this. Antignot Yishtocho is telling his students, don't be those people who serve the creator of the universe in order to receive a reward in order to have a good afterlife, in order to, whatever you're looking for. Rather, serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the sake of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As you know, the book of Avot is not a book of Halakha. This is not a book that is, contains teachings that are Halakhic in nature. This is a book, it's a book full of words of piety. And it could be that on a basic level, it's fine. In fact, many, many commentaries on this Mishnah struggle with the fact that so many verses in the Torah tell us to do something in order to receive something. For example, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Why? What's the, what, what's the, what do you get from that? In order so that your life should be long. And my mother said that, which I hope was a blessing, that I should have a long life. Uh, and that, in order so you should have a long life. So, on a basic level, it seems fine. I'm, I'll give you a very superficial answer. There are many, many chachamim who have discussed this topic. On a superficial level, it's okay to serve the Creator with, it's not an ulterior motive, but with a motive of doing His will, so that uh, I'll receive some reward. But there's a higher level than that, and that is to serve the Creator purely for the purpose of serving the Creator. Because I want to serve the Creator. That's my reward. Rabbi Yosef Masas begins his sermon to his community. Hashem Antignos, the name Antignos. It is a Greek word that is made up of two parts. Antignos. And it means Antignos. Sone Gedula. Anti, gnos, those who hate greatness. Kmo anti, anti-shemit, you see here? <laughs> like an anti-semite, you'd use that word. So, anti-gnos. So, for example, those who hate the family of Shem, who is the son of Noach, and the Jewish people come from that family of Shem. This directly connects to Rabbi Yosef Masas telling us to have their heretz. Upiresh gnos, gdula, gnos means greatness. Kmobat gnusim. Upirshusham batovim, bat gedolim, like in Shira Shirim, we use this word to mean the daughter of greatness, the daughter of important people. Uvirshon aravit hamiduberet, and I'm not an expert in Arabic, I wish I was, but in Arabic, spoken Arabic, why does he say spoken Arabic as opposed to what? I didn't hear. Very good. There's spoken Arabic, and then there's uh, written Arabic. Those are two. The written Arabic is much more formal. It's also, I'm not like I said, an expert in Arabic, but it's. Imagine comparing a written book with 
some person just speaking on the street corner. It's, two, it's the same language, but it's two different languages really. In spoken Arabic, at least where Rabbi Yosef Masas lives in North Africa, Antignos, and therefore the forefathers of Antignos, that were righteous and humble people. They named him Antignos. To teach him that uh, the proper way of life. So when he'll grow up, that he should always despise greatness and honor. And that's exactly what was with Antignos. And honor always followed him, even though he was always running away from it. And he was a man of the place of Soho. And that is a city in the portion of Yehuda, Judea. And this is a sign that he comes from the tribe of Yehuda. It's a very unusual thing that in Eretz Yisrael we're still fighting over who owns Judea and Samaria. Who does Yehuda belong to? Hari Yehuda, in its name, belongs to the Yehudim. Judea belongs to the people of Judah who came from there. But here, Rabbi Yosef Masas is sharing with you a reason, perhaps, as to why the parents of Antignos even named him Antignos, because of the spoken Greek of that time. Antignos means someone who hates pride and honor. And it's a name that you give someone hoping that they will grow up and not be arrogant. You, know, you can't be called, I hate pride, when you're a proud person. You can't be called, I hate honor, when you're a person who's always running after honor. By the way, this teaching here, that someone runs away from honor and honor pursues them, they say that somebody once came to a great Hasidic rabbi. I don't know who it was. Maybe Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, but I don't know. I'm not a Hasid. Someone came to the rabbi, my whole life I'm running away from honor. And they say that someone who runs away from honor, honor will pursue them. But honor never pursues me. I just keep running away and it never comes. He says, you know when someone runs away but they keep looking over their shoulder? He says, you're the person who's running away from honor, but you keep looking over your shoulder to see if it's coming. You have to really run away from honor and then you'll become an honorable person. Antignos was that person. I'll tell you something interesting. That Antignos was so humble, we really don't have any teachings of his aside from the one I just read. He's not mentioned anywhere else in rabbinic literature. Rabbi Yosef Masas has a few theories as to why that is the case. If you look on page 207, Rabbi Yosef Masaz tries to understand how Antignos got to Soho in the first place. Let us return to our main point. The second paragraph on page 207. Antignos was always running away from honor. And where he noticed that in a place of Soho there were no people, I mean, there were no Torah scholars, he decided to go be the Torah scholar there. A rabbi say there's two types of bad Torah scholars in the world. Those who are not worthy of teaching and they teach, are not worthy of ruling and they rule. And those who are worthy of ruling but they don't. 
both of them are guilty for damage. So underqualified and, uh, and qualified. Those who are not qualified to teach, but they do teach. Thank you very much for joining us. Those who are qualified to teach and don't teach, essentially leave a void. Why are they not teaching? Why does someone who's qualified to teach Torah choose not to teach Torah? Why is Antigonus trying to avoid teaching? Humble. They're too humble. He's humble. Why should I be the head? Let somebody else be the head. Let somebody else be the chief rabbi. Let somebody else be the chacham. But what happens when you leave a void? Other people come and they fill that void. Who normally fills the void? Well, there's a whole world of people who are not qualified to teach Torah, and they're teaching Torah. By the way, just open up your internet browser, write the word Torah, you'll be amazed what pops up. I'm sure people will say the same thing about me, it's okay. But there are people who are not qualified, and both of them are guilty for damage that happens in Amisai. So even though Antigonus desired to run away from honor, he didn't do it. Because at the end of the day, when he was needed to step up to the plate, that's what he did. He says, now I wish to explain to you the teaching that he left us in Pekhi Avot. He said, aside from this teaching of Pekhi Avot, we have no other teachings, not halachic teachings, and not agadic teachings of Antignos Ishtocho. Certainly he taught a lot. And either or it was lost to us because of time. Time has, does what it does. Or because he was so humble, he always quoted his rabbi and he never, he never made it seem like he was the one who was teaching. Rather he was always just relaying information from his predecessors. Oh, or third... The people of Soho didn't do their job to bring their rabbi's teachings out to the Jewish people. I think that all three could be true, so I'm giving a fourth opinion. Sometimes what happens with the Chacham is that they teach. But time takes its toll. I'll give you an example. The writings of the Benishchai. I have a book in my library, two volumes, of the Benishchai's writings that were found in the water in a flooded basement of Saddam Hussein. It was in an intelligence basement of, of one of Saddam Hussein's uh, intelligence unit's buildings. They had taken it from the Jewish community. And an American soldier in the early 2000s found these documents, water damaged. Eventually they made their way to Jerusalem. They were published. I have those books. And sometimes there are books that are, are damaged. They're, they're lost. The world changes. Revolutions happen. Exile happens. The Jewish people were not blessed with the gift of staying in one place for very long. We're always sent from one place to the next place to the next place. And it's hard. It's hard to make sure that the things that you have from one place survive to the next. Time. Time also takes its toll because of languages. So imagine this. Imagine... That not so long ago, 80 years ago, 90 years ago, all of your grandparents spoke a language that was not English. 
For some, it might have been Yiddish. For some, it might have been Arabic. For some, it might have been Spanish. Some, French. Some, everyone might have a different language. I can't tell you which language it was. And those Chachamim in those places, they wrote books in Arabic and in Yiddish and in French and in Spanish and in German. And Then we moved to a new country. And those books may have come with us, but who bothered to translate them to the new language that we were in? The Peleoetz, it would be Eliezer Papo, he writes that there's always a risk when an author chooses to write a Jewish work. See, when I started writing my book, Yehi Shalom, I wanted to write it in Hebrew. That was my plan, was to write it in Hebrew. I'm writing a book of Halakha. I want to be able to introduce it to the Bidah Midrash in Hebrew so other Torah scholars can decide whether it's something they appreciate or they don't. And then I came across the writings of the Peleoetz in which he says, do you know how many books that are written in Hebrew are sitting on a bookshelf gathering dust? Because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books in Hebrew. And he said, and how few are the people who write books in the local language of the communities where they live? But why don't people want to write books in English? Because I know that my book in English, I have students in other countries that don't understand that book. Or their children don't, or their communities don't. Or the next Galut, because we will leave this exile too. We'll all go back to Eretz Yisrael, best case scenario. And which generation is going to be able to read Yehi Shalom in English? Says the Peleoetz, but you, maybe your book won't survive. But it's because of your book that this community of non-Hebrew speakers will survive as Jews to the next country. And that encouraged me to write my book in English. But that could be what happened also with some of the writings of Antigonus Yisrochel. Who knew what happened to them? His humility? Yeah. You know, there are many great books. I'm thinking of the writings of the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. In the introduction to his Mesilat Yisharim, he writes that there's nothing new in this book. I'm only bringing all the words of the rabbis who came before me. And someone who's going to read this book might think, well, Mislati Sharim is just a collection of writings from other people. And someone doesn't realize the profound greatness of the Mislati Sharim. There's humility in the world. And third, third, how many Chachamim had books that they wished that people cared enough about them in order to print them, in order to publish them? There are books in my home that I, yeah, when I, for example, I travel. I lose sleep over them. What will happen if these books get lost? There are books that nobody else has. Nobody else cares to have them. They have these, I'm not going to mention names of Jewish publishing presses, but books on happiness and marital harmony and, I don't know, halab baking and recipe books and, and commentaries of commentaries of commentaries on a book that wasn't even worth writing a commentary on in the first place. All these books, you can buy thousands of copies in New York, New Jersey, whatever you want. But there are books that Chachamim gave us that you wonder, why is there no Shulchan Aruch in English? Ever asked that question? Maran Shulchan Aruch. There's no Shulchan Aruch in English. B'zalat Hashem. Out of our Ben Amidash. But you ever ask yourself a question, why there are classic works that have disappeared? Because time and communities that don't care enough to do their job. It's part of our Shiviti goal eventually, to get books out to the world. I was just speaking yesterday with one of my friends about the writings of Rabbi Menashe Ben Israel. I'm taking a tangent. I entirely didn't intend to take a tangent here. 
Rabbi Menashe ben Israel. Have you heard of Rabbi Menashe ben Israel? Anyone heard of him here? Somebody make my day. Rabbi Menashe ben Israel was a Sephardic rabbi from a family of, of Anusim. So his family was forced to convert to Catholicism. His family ended up running from one country to the next, looking for a safe place to come out again as Jews. Rabbi Menashe ben Israel finds himself in Amsterdam. Finally, it's a free place, relatively, to come out as a Jewish person. He studies by the Chachamim there at a very young age. He's appointed to be a rabbi of a community, namely a community of other Anusim that had come over from Spain and Portugal. Rabbi Menashe ben Israel, they claim that the portrait we have of him was painted by his friend Rembrandt. You heard of him? Now, I don't know if it's true or not. I've read different academic papers debating this way or the other. He's a painter. Yeah, that's right. Meaning, we heard of Rembrandt, but he also crossed paths. Some even say he was a rabbi of another Sephardic Jew, infamous, by the name of Baruch Spinoza. Have you heard of him? Rabbi Menashe ben Israel had one of the most successful printing presses in Amsterdam. He printed hundreds of books for Sephardim and for Ashkenazi Jews in the later part of his life. Rabbi Menashe ben Israel was almost single-handedly responsible for helping the Jews regain entry into the United Kingdom. You know for a few, a very long stretch in history. I think 300 years, but don't hold me to it. I'm not an expert. The Jews were not allowed to enter the United Kingdom. And Rabbi Menashe ben Israel wrote a book in English to Oliver Cromwell, proving to him why he should allow the Jewish people back into the United Kingdom. It did not happen in his lifetime, but just afterwards, he let the Jews in. He wrote books in Portuguese. He wrote books in Spanish. He wrote books in English. He wrote books in Hebrew. And from the few Hebrew books that he wrote, we have some of them. You can't buy them in any of the bookstores you're looking at. His books in Portuguese, Harav Peretz, Mori Harav, once told me that any person who is willing to translate his books into Hebrew, he said, I wish that my portion of the next world will be with that person. One of our great Chachami, whose writings we don't even have on our shelves, because of all of the reasons we mentioned above. I didn't intend to take this tangent. I want to take you to our next source. In the encyclopedia that's found, I don't know on which page of your PDF, maybe page 9, 10, and 11, if I'm doing the math properly. But I'm not so great at math. I'm going to ask my father. On page 155, it's at the top right, 155. Do you see that? Maybe page 11 of your PDF, or 13. It's an odd number, I remember. In the left column, he was a sage in this bridge generation. Between the men of the great assembly and then the rabbis who came in pairs, otherwise known as the zugot. They were the rabbis that ended up until the generation of Hillel and Shammai. He was from the city of Soho in Yehuda. 
Hayat Hanmidosha Shimon HaTzadik, we know all this already, he was a student of Shimon HaTzadik. Vishimesh Nasi Acharav, and he was a prince in his place. If you want to put him in your map of history and Jewish holidays, he lived a generation or two before the rebellion of the Chashmonaim, the Maccabees against the Greeks, the story of Hanukkah. When the evil, the betrayers among the Jewish people began to join forces with the Greeks, the Hellenists, in order to force the Jews to leave their faith. There's a story about Antignos Ishtocho. It's found in the next PDF that I attached for you. It says number 15 and then Sadducees on top. This is part of a shi'u that I gave in the United Kingdom. So if you want to go to my United Kingdom playlist, Expanding Horizons, I spent a lot of time in depth talking about Antignos Yusocho, his students, and the devastating effect that they had on the Jewish community. The PDF looks like this. Let me show it to you. Close. Yes. And we're in the bottom right of page 1, source 4. Let's look at the top left. The top left of page one. Antignos is shocho ayulo shnetan This is found in the writings of Avodir Binatan. Antignos, the man of Socho, had two students. Shehayu shonin bidvarav, that they would review his teachings. They were Torah scholars who had students, and they had students of students. So this is the generation after Antignos Yishtocho. These are his students. They began analyzing the writings of their predecessor, Antignos. They said, why did our predecessor, Antignos, our rabbi, why did he teach us that we should be like servants who serve a master not to receive a reward? Rather, could it be that a worker works the whole day, they labor the whole day, and at night they don't receive payment? Could it be such a thing that a person will work the whole day for free and not receive reward? Rather, if our forefathers would have believed, meaning if Antignos would have believed that there was a world to come and there would be a resurrection of the dead, he would have never taught this teaching. But it must be that because he taught us to serve the Creator and not to expect a reward, that means that he really didn't believe that there is a reward. Amdu, these students stood up, and they separated from the Torah. And two breakaway groups came out of them. Two factions. The Sadducees. And there's a way in English that both Lucians, 
Baitusin, we say in Hebrew. Tzedukim al Shem Tzadok, Ubaitusin al Shem Baitus. They were each named after the factions who led them. The students of Antigonus Yisrochol were Tzadok. Tzadok, his students were called the Sadducees, the Tzedukim. Some say Tzedukim, Tzedukim. Vahiyum Mishtamshim Bechlei Kesef, Uchlei Zahav, Kol Yimehem. And they involved themselves in eating with silver and gold their whole life. They ate in gold and silver and indulged in this world not because they wanted to be haughty. They wanted to show those Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Those are us, the Perushim. Look at these rabbis. They think that they work so hard. They're so pious. They're, they refrain from the world. They think there's some reward waiting for them. But when they get there, they realize it's all nothing. You have to enjoy yourself in this world. And I brought from you a verse in Kohelet and Ishayahu and, and Source 2 and 3 that mentions eat and drink and be merry. This is really an oversimplification of the philosophy of a famous man by the name of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we shall die. Who said it? No, where's Zev Rosenberg when I need him? Rabbanit, you unmuted yourself. You can do it now. They normally used it in Roman culture, but that would post-date Antigonus. There was a famous man named, in Hebrew we call him Epikoros. I think in English they call him Epicurus. Could it be that I pronounced it correctly? Yes. Yes. Epikoros is where the rabbis got the phrase, that person is an Epikoros. Apikores in Ashkenazi Hebrew. A heretic. There was a whole faction that believed, eat, drink, be married, tomorrow we will die. There is no world to come. It's really uh, a shame that... You know, maybe we'll do a little more. If it's okay with you, let's uh, do a little more. In my shiul, in the United Kingdom, I expanded more. So if you want to spend time on this topic, please look at it more. Time immemorial, I've told people that I'm not an Orthodox Jew, I'm not an Orthodox rabbi, and I mean it every time that I say it. It's ironic to then say, so I'm Sephardic, but that's the only way in people's compartmentalized heads that they can begin to understand what it is that I'm referring to. I have many friends that are affiliated with the reform and conservative movements. And the one statement I've ever said is as follows. I can forgive, you know, Golda Meir once said something similar about our cousins. That I can forgive the reform and conservative movements for many things. But I can never forgive them for creating the orthodoxy that you and I have to live with today. And I mean every word that I just told you. This monster, which has been created, especially here, stateside, but Israel is equally bad, just different. This monster that is Orthodox Judaism was created as a reaction to everything else that was going on in the world around them. There's a book, my wife will probably remember the name, about the Art Scroll Revolution. 
And when Orthodox Judaism decided to sell itself as the only Torah true Judaism, it caused a lot of damage in the Jewish community. Today, it still caused a lot of damage in the Jewish community. Because a reactionary Judaism, a Judaism that cannot do this or will not do that or will not engage in this because of outside factors. This Judaism is not a healthy Judaism. It's a sick Judaism. It's a Judaism that has problems. What? Orthodox by Design by Jeremy yeah, Stolo. That one, Orthodox by Design. I highly recommend reading it. Don't say I agree with everything in the book, but I highly recommend reading it. And just like the movements that broke away created this Judaism that you find today, in the times of the Second Bet Mikdash, when movements started breaking away, if it's the Tzedukim, if it's the Baitusim, if it's the Minim, who are the Minim? Who are Minim? You say it every day in your Tefillah, who are you talking about? What does it mean? What what is when the Chachamim use the word minim? Who are they referring to? Who who are they? We have tzedukim, we have baitusim, we have who are the minim? The followers of Yeshu. The followers of Yeshu are minim. They believed in Torah. They kept Shabbat. They ate kasher. They, I mean, that changed as history went forward. But their belief in Yeshu caused them to be minim. You know, I don't want to bring judgment on the whole Jewish community, but there are most definitely minim among us. Not here. Uh, in the Jewish world. So it's not Yeshu. They replaced it with somebody else. We pray every day in our Amidah. And essentially we created this group that we know to be Pirushim, the Pharisees. Before then we were Jews. Now we're Pharisees. What is a Pharisee? Our Chachamim struggled with certain types of Pharisees. Look on page 2, source 5. I'll read to you in English. There's a few type of Pirushim. The Pharisee of Shechem, a Shechmi. This is one who performs actions comparable to the actions of the people of Shechem. The self-flagellating righteous. Parush Nikfi. This is one who injures his feet as he walks slowly, dragging his feet on the ground in an attempt to appear humble, but injures his feet in the process. Parush Kizai. The pestle-like righteous. Rabbah Barshila says that this is one who walks bent over like the pestle of a mortar. There is a pirush with regard to the righteous one who says, tell me what my obligation is and I will perform it. There's a righteous one due to love, a Pharisee due to fear. And follow me to page 3, source 6. This book is found in Hebrew and English. You can buy the set in, or individual copies. But it's a set called Our Sages by Rabbi Dr. Benny Lau. Benjamin Lau. He has it in Hebrew also. Listen, I have to say that I'm not a student of Rabbi Lau and there are some pretty hot disagreements between our Ben Amidash and there. But this work is a very important work to understanding the Second Temple times. And he writes the following on page 3. 
The Talmud describes several different types of obsessive religious behavior. We are all too familiar with these kind of Pharisees in our everyday religious experience. Instead of reading the word Pharisee, just read Jew. Religious Jew, observant Jew, Orthodox Jew, whatever word you use when you refer to people who are observant of halakha, I'm not an expert in titles. The Shikhmi Pharisee. One who acts in the manner of Shechem, that is, the person whose actions are motivated entirely by his own benefit, such as the circumcision of the men of Shechem. Why were they getting circumcised? What do they want to accomplish? Why were the men of Shechem getting circumcised? They wanted to be able to marry into Yaakov's family. They wanted to marry into Yaakov's family, to the children of Israel, and so they had to have a big meal up first. So they were doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. There's hardly need to even mention this type because all of his acts are purely for his own sake and not for the sake of heaven. He may fulfill commandments with the very best Pharisees, but his motivations are entirely self-centered without any trace of godliness. We all know people like that. Their religious observance centers them around themselves. The Nikfi Pharisee, one who knocks his feet on the ground. This is the person who walks heel after toe, who avoids lifting his foot for fear of not finding where to tread, and so he drags on foot after the other, well, one foot after the other, ruining his feet and going nowhere. This foot-dragging religiosity is based on fear, which brings a person and those around him to spiritual paralysis. Any innovation, any untrodden territory, seems to him to be an impassable minefield. This kind of fear paralyzes. You ever met Jews like this? They're terrified of uncharted territories. They don't know. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to deal with new realities. Their Judaism is frozen. Nikfi. It's a Judaism that is, is heel after toe. They can, they're barely moving. They can't keep up with the world around them. So it's much easier to lock yourself into a ghetto to keep yourself closed off, only your own people, only your own community. The Kizai Pharisee, one whose blood spurts out on the walls. He averts his eyes from seeing evil. When he thinks he might see a woman in the street, he closes his eyes so he bumps into walls injuring his head. The description of the bleeding wound here is significant. In his attempt to avoid what he sees as sin, this person is capable of shedding his own blood. That's a typo. Such a Jew ends up bruised and wounded and his fearful approach is condemned. Have you never met a Jewish person before whose religious observance leads them to harm themselves or their children or their family or the people around them? Today, my father shared with me on the news a terrible story. Somebody had jumped off a building to commit suicide and they fell on top of somebody else and killed them also. It's a terrible thing. I mean, it's a, what brings a person to want to take their own life? But a person normally thinks taking their life, it's, it's uh, an action that doesn't affect other people. We know that's not true on an emotional level. But here it wasn't true even on a real physical level. There's an innocent bystander didn't choose to die today. There are people that in the name of their religion destroy their children. They destroy their relationships with their spouses. They blood is spurting everywhere. Because to them, that doesn't matter. And this approach is condemned. The pestle Pharisee. 
one whose head is bent in humility when he walks. This is the person whose sense of fear makes him want to simply disappear. The sheer weight of his overwhelming fear of heaven crushes any possible expression of his own personality. This kind of Pharisee reflects the type of excessive humility which leads to total self-negation. And before you jump on me, yes, there are certain Hasidic groups whose entire philosophy surrounds this virtue of self-negation. They call it bitul, to nullify oneself. It's a very dangerous thing. I have a few shiurim from our Agadita course. That in the religious world today, there are so few, uh, forgive the word, lack of color. It's not, I'm not referring to skin colors only. It could also refer to that. I'm referring to the, the types of things that people can involve in. Then I was mentioning the world of Baalei Teshuvah that come out of the Jewish community. Gerim. They come from out of the Jewish community with talent, with careers, with uh, mentalities, with cultures, with things that can bring a fresh perspective to Am Yisrael. But by the time they go through whatever system it is they have to go through, all of that individuality and all of that, that rejuvenating spirit that could be brought to Am Yisrael is, is destroyed, crushed, completely erased from them. And it's a harmful thing. There are people whose Torah crushes them. Harapelus was recently interviewed. Over and over the interviewer wanted to know, so what was Judaism like in Morocco? What was like was expected? I don't know what the answer he was expecting. Over and over and over, Harapelus only said one thing. Judaism was very pleasant. Very pleasant. Over, it was very pleasant. Over and over and over again. And this person felt like you're giving me such a, such a, a, a fluff answer. that can't. And I was thinking to myself, don't you understand that that's the greatest thing of it all? Judaism was enjoyable. Judaism was pleasant. That's how it used to be once upon a time. It wasn't like it is today. People actually wanted to be Jewish and stay Jewish. You can't imagine such a crazy thing. What else should I do and I will do it, Pharisee? One who is obsessed with fear, constantly looking for more strictures to obey, he can never relax because he's convinced that there must always be some additional obligation, some new stricture, some new task. There must be something more he can do to improve his worship. He wants to achieve religious perfection, but only feels a sense of his own imperfection. This kind of obsession can create tremendous tension and social pressure. Some days, I walk around the Jewish community thinking that almost everybody around us is this way. They call it the Khumra of the Month Club. Uh, one of the rabbis I saw last year, he wrote, he said, you know, I love all these new Pesach stringencies that people make up. I was getting bored of the ones they made up last year. I'm glad they came up with new ones this year. There's a whole world of people that are, they're not content just doing what they have to do. HaKadosh Baruch told us exactly what he wants. Our Chachamim codified exactly what we want. I have a student, he lives in New York, he should live in Biwal. And he was sitting at a Shabbat table where somebody said, the Shulchan Aruch is not good enough for me. I want to be better than Shulchan Aruch. I'm thinking to myself, Better than the Shulchan Aruch? What are, you, what are you looking for exactly? But he's this person. Tell me what else I should do. The common factor in all of these is a nervous, neurotic kind of religiosity. Grounded in the basis type of fear. Which fails to help a person attain any spiritual elevation at all. I think that so much of the Judaism that we live in today is affected directly or indirectly. By this lofty teaching of Antignos Ishtocho, and the negative interpretation that his students, Tzadok and Baitus, walked away with. They walked away, they created a new Judaism. Ironically, the Judaism that they created backfired and created a new type of Pharisee also. 
and I think that in our thousands of years of exile, wandering through different places, the condition has not become better, it has only become worse. Worse and worse and worse. And I think that as we finish here today discussing Antigonus Yisroho, we cannot help but say a few things. One, Chachamim, Hizha'u B'divrachim. Our Rabbis say, sages, be very careful with the words that you say. Because the words that you say can destroy the world. A Tamil Chacham says something, someone misinterprets it. Sometimes in my class, I'll, I'll give a shiur and I'll say, nobody should walk away saying that I said X, Y, and Z. It's not what I said. It's important. The second, to realize just how thin that line is between understanding Torah correctly and destroying the whole world with Torah. And third, that any type of Judaism that we involve ourselves in, that is a reactionary Judaism, that when you ask a question in halakha and the answer is not because that's just written in Shulchan Aruch, but because what are people going to say? What is the community going to say? What are those guys? What, how is it going to be perceived? We don't, we're not this, we're not that. But there's no answer of substance. It doesn't come from Judaism. You should be scared. You should realize that such groups ultimately create these types of Pharisees that our rabbis in the Mishnah say are from the type of people who destroy the world. Because really, a destroyed Judaism means a destroyed world. Bezat Hashem, we should continue in the path of Antignos Yisrochom. We should be able to deal with the world in such a way that is healthy, that is fitting, that is not reactionary. Because our Torah can handle everything. Our Torah is true. And therefore our Torah of truth can handle any innovation, any new invention, any, any new reality, any social, everything our Torah can handle. And if a person is afraid that our Torah will not stand up to the test of time, most likely it's because they don't really believe in our Torah in the first place. Our Torah doesn't need protection. Our Torah doesn't need to be kept in a ghetto. Our Torah, our Torah is a beautiful Torah. The only thing our Torah needs is that the whole world should be exposed to it. The world one day will be filled with the knowledge of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Torah and the Mitzvot. We should live to see that day.